Amen. Y'all may have a seat. All right, if you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 12 today. John chapter 12, and we are in a study of the book of John. If you're a guest with us today, we have been going through the book of John. And um, can someone tell me, um, starting with verse 12, do you have a heading above verse 12? What does it say? The triumphal entry. All right. Um, I started this series, this series, this study of John like last year. Okay. And um, I, when I started this study of John and going through the, the first however many chapters we went through last year and you know, and I changed things and, and I, I preached like maybe what I thought would have been one message turned into maybe two, maybe three sometimes. Well, you know what, how God just for me really surprises me sometimes is today is Palm Sunday. And look where we're at, the triumphal entry. I'm, I'm like, I, 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 when I put my, my calendar together this year, I even told Paul, I go, holy cow. I go, I go, when I get to this chapter, it's going to fall on Palm Sunday. And so I really find it very interesting that, that this is where we're at. And so, um, you know, there are times in life when things just come to head, all right? You, you're, you, you, there's a decision that you have to make. And you can no longer just sit on the fence about it. You ever been there? I mean, it could be a financial issue, a health issue, a relational issue. You're, it is just, it's come to head. You've got to make a decision. You've got to get off the fence. You cannot just sit idle anymore. You've got to make a decision. This is where we're at with the triumphal entry. All right? Things are coming to head with Jesus and the people of Israel. And, and it's coming to a point where people are having to make a decision about Jesus, all right? And I've actually entitled my message today a little bit different. Instead of the triumphal entry, I'm actually entitling it the triumphal confrontation. And we're going to look at four things that we're going to see this triumphal entry brings and how it confronts us with Jesus, all right, it can, Jesus confronted, these people had to confront some things about Jesus back then, and it's no different for us today. All of us are confronted with Jesus. And so let's look at four things that the triumphal entry brings about confrontation. Here's the first one. I would encourage you to take notes, write things down, but here's the first one. The triumphal entry brings a confrontation of understanding. It brings a confrontation of understanding. And so let's start be, verse 12. We've got a lot of verses to go through, so I'm going to read a lot of it and just kind of hit, just teach a little bit, and then there's going to be certain sections that I'm going to dive deeper on. So starting with verse 12, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This was... Um, Passover week, all right? The people of Israel all would leave their homes and would start to gather in Jerusalem, and this is where they would celebrate Passover. And Passover was the biggest um, holiday for the Jews. They remembered the, and commemorated what, how Moses delivered the people out of Egypt, and that's what's going on here. 
a massive amount of people are now converging onto Jerusalem. And so it says they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now, it sounds like from that, that he was already coming into Jerusalem, sees a donkey and sits on it. John kind of doesn't, he writes it differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke says he starts coming to Jerusalem, tells his disciples and says, hey, there's a donkey over here. This guy owns it. Go get it. Bring it here. And he, they go get the donkey. He gets on it and begins to ride into Jerusalem. All right. And as he's riding into Jerusalem, the city goes into mass chaos because they, the people of Israel at this time, the, the, the Jewish people, see Jesus coming. But their understanding of who he is is warped, all right? He's been with these people for now about three years. He's been doing miracle after miracle after miracle. His, he's been teaching them, this is who I am. I'm the light of the world. I'm the lamb that's come to take away the sin. I'm the bread of life. He's been teaching them, I'm the Messiah. I'm your savior. They're not getting it. They don't understand who Jesus truly is. Because what they begin to do is they go out with palm leaves, all right? Boy, I really wish we lived in a place with palm trees. Because if we had palm trees, you know what? It'd be outside really, really warm. Amen. So there, these people are cutting down leaves off of palm trees. And they're going out. And they would have been waving them or laying them on the ground. Now, why would they be doing that? Because the palm tree, the palm leaves, the waving of palm leaves or putting them down was always a symbol or a sign of triumph. And it was actually whenever a king would go out and conquer their enemies, and as he would ride in, usually on a horse, he would ride triumphantly with all of the prisoners of war behind them, and the people of the city would gather on the streets, along the buildings, and they would be shouting victor victorious tunes and words to their king. And they would be throwing palm leaves down and waving them as a sign of victory. Our king won. They're seeing Jesus as a king, but the wrong king. In fact, if you notice, it says they began to shout Hosanna. I think it's Mark, it talks about Hosanna in the highest. And, and when they talk about shouting Hosanna, Hosanna was a Hebrew word, which meant, it meant to say, save now. There's like, save us now. The word Hosanna eventually morphed more into a, a word of praise. That's why when we sing songs that have the word Hosanna in it, it it's a word of praise. But for them here now, they're saying, Jesus, you're our king. Save us now. But their salvation is wrong. Their salvation isn't spiritual. It's political. They're, at this time, the, the, the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, was under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And at that time, the Roman Empire was the greatest army in the, in the world. And they made everybody their subjects. Jerusalem and Israel and the Jews were just part of it. Well, the Jewish people were fed up with Rome. And they saw Jesus as their deliverer. 
So when he's coming into Jerusalem, they're like, our king is here. He's getting us out from under the oppression of, of, of Rome, and we're going to win. Hallelujah. Get the, get the leaves out. And let's, let's. But Jesus is coming in Jerusalem, not on a horse, but a donkey. And the donkey was always, it resembled two things, humility and burden. He was, it was a beast of burden. It wasn't a beast of victory. Jesus was vindicating just like the donkey was carrying him. He would be, become that beast of burden to carry the sin of the world on him. And he was coming not to bring political deliverance. Isn't it weird how we have become the people of Israel? America is now Israel. Because it's weird. It's weird. We have some reason to think that Jesus is political today. He is not. All right? Just say, everybody say, he is not. He is not political. He never has been political. The only time he will become political is when he returns. And then the governments will be on his shoulders. Because he will be the king of kings ruling then. But he came not to deliver them politically, but spiritually. Because if you look at verse 15, John is quoting from the book of Zechariah. And he says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, you, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Well, the thing is, John doesn't quote all of Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. You see, the king that Jesus was, was not a king to deliver them politically. He was not the king that would become the king to overtake Rome. He was the king of righteousness. He was the king of salvation. He, was, he came to declare to Israel, I have come to deliver you, not from the oppression of a man, but oppression of your sin. That's what he came to deliver Israel from and then the rest of the world from. But the people didn't understand that. And there was a confrontation with their understanding. Their understanding to them was he's going to deliver us physically. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not. I'm going to deliver you spiritually. And they didn't understand that. Look at verse 16. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So even in this moment, the, the, his, his 12 disciples are like, what in the world is happening here? I mean, this, the, these people have just gone wacky. Why are they doing this? They didn't. They didn't understand who Jesus really was. They still weren't grasping it. But after he died and rose from the grave and was glorified and ascended back into heaven, and the Holy Spirit now starts to teach them, they're like, ah, got it. He didn't come to deliver us from Rome. He truly came to deliver us from our sin. He came to save us, to be the savior of the world. So the disciples didn't truly understand. But look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Okay, do you remember we talked about that in chapter 11? 
Jesus was at, in, in Bethany at, at, at Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's house, and Lazarus had died. He goes up to the tomb, and a crowd of people had gone to Bethany who were friends of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and, and a group of people saw Jesus walk up to the tomb and say, Lazarus, come out after four days of being dead. And if you remember, in, within this group of people, the group divided into two different types, believers and unbelievers. There were people who believed what Jesus did was awesome. He was the Messiah. Only God could do that. And there were still people who were like, nah, 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 nah. Still don't believe it. It's these people who saw Jesus do it and believed. And look what it says, what they were doing. So these people who had been with, with Jesus, saw this happen, Lazarus coming out of the tomb, it says, and they, he, he, that raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. So you have the majority of the people not understanding who Jesus is. You have the disciples not really understanding who Jesus is. But you have this small little ragtag team of people going, nah, you think he's going to deliver you from Rome. That's not what he's here for. He's here to save us from our sin. He's here to deliver us from being a sinner. That's who he is. And this little ragtag group of people understood who Jesus was. And the reality is the confrontation of understanding has not changed. Because there are people today, and maybe you, you hear about Jesus, you think about Jesus and Jesus to you, and a lot of people is simply this. He was just a good moral teacher. Yeah, he was a, a, a religious leader, but so was Muhammad. So was Buddha. He was just a religious teacher just like anybody else. And so what we do is our misunderstanding of who Jesus is just categorizes him as anybody else. But the Bible makes it very clear who Jesus is. He is Lord. He is Messiah. He is Savior of the world. He is the one who came to be the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. He came for you. He came and died on a cross for your sin, for your salvation. The question is, is, do you understand that? Where do you see Jesus as? Because there is a confrontation of understanding. Here's the second thing. The second thing this triumphal entry brings is this. It's a confrontation of priorities. Did I put priorities or values on there? That should be priorities. I changed it and I didn't change it in my notes. It should be priorities. But there is a confrontation of priorities going on here. Look at verse 20. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So apparently Greeks were non-Jewish people, basically heathens, basically, you know, ungodly people. Well, these Greeks apparently turned from their false religion, from their Greek worship, and turned and converted to Judaism. And they're like, they're like, okay, they didn't understand who Jesus was completely, but they understood our gods are false. The Jewish God is the one true God, and we're going to turn to him. And they, they, became, a, they, be, they, be, they became Jewish in their, their religion. And so now they are at the Passover feast to celebrate it. In verse 21, it says, So these Greeks, they came to Philip, one of the, the disciples of Jesus, 
who was in Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, can we, we wish to see Jesus? And Philip went and told Andrew. I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. Hey, Andrew, we've got some Greeks out here, man. Now, you got to understand, to a Jewish person, you didn't, you didn't hang out with non-Jewish people. So you got these Greeks coming kind of like in your personal space. And Philip's like, whoa, whoa, time out here. I'll be right back. Give me a sec. Hey, Andrew, you know, and then you get, Pete, you get, get Philip and Andrew together. And so in verse 22, it says, Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now, here's two things we don't understand and what we don't see. One, we don't know why the Greeks wanted to see Jesus. Maybe they're looking around going, wow, something about this guy is different. Let's go find out what it, what, what it is. Why are these people acting like this? Who is this guy? But the second thing is, we don't know if Jesus saw him or not. Pete, Philip, and Andrew are like, hey, Jesus, we got some Greeks out here. and They want to see you. My hour has not come yet. That's not what we asked you, Jesus. Do you want to see these guys or not? My hour's not come yet. And he continues on. And it's almost like he, so does he? Did he? We don't know. Are we all good with the fact that John doesn't tell us if he saw him or not? You okay with that? Okay, let's move on then. But Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knows. He's the only one that knows. Everybody else isn't getting it yet. My hour has come. I am five days away from my arrest. I'm five days away from my trial. I'm five days away of being crucified. I'm five days away of fulfilling the mission the Father sent me to do. I'm five days away of dying. His hour has come and he knows it. And in verse 24, he says to Philip and Andrew and he says, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'm really glad I was not a disciple because I would get frustrated. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Why? How many of you know Jesus probably just wasn't talking randomly just to talk randomly? He always had a purpose for what he had to say. Even though to us and maybe to even these disciples, they scratched their heads so many times going, I don't get it. Jesus is explaining to these guys, my hour has come. And here's the thing, guys. If I don't fulfill this hour, nothing's going to happen. He's like, he, he's comparing himself to like, like being a seed. He goes, he goes, if you take a seed and it goes into the ground, the seed has to die in the ground, which is a good thing because it'll die. But then that seed is going to burst forth and something's coming from the seed. It's going to produce a harvest. It's going to bear fruit. He goes, my body is like that seed. I'm going to die and I'm going to be placed in the ground. He goes, but here's the thing. If I don't die, that seed, he goes, if the seed doesn't die, if I don't die, that seed will just remain up by itself. Nothing's going to happen to it. And what that really means is Jesus is like, if I don't die, I'm still going back to heaven. I'm going back to the Father. But nobody else will be with me. Because all of humanity will still be lost. Because all of humanity will still be dead in their sin. So yeah, I will, I will still go back to heaven. But I will be alone. And how many of you know, 
Jesus doesn't want to be alone. That's why he came. And that's why he says, if it dies, then it remains alone. It, it, nothing happens. But if it dies, meaning it goes into the ground, it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus is saying, he goes, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, there's no fruit. Nothing happens. Nobody's saved. Everybody will be lost eternally. But if I die, if I perform and fulfill the will of the Father, if I do this, if, if this hour happens and I die, much fruit will take place. And the fruit that he's talking about is that people will come to the place of understanding who he is. People will come to the place where they'll understand Jesus is the Messiah. I can't fix myself. I can't save myself. And people will get it. He came to die on a cross to take the sin of humanity on himself to die for my sin. And people will come to the place where they will understand he is the light, the Messiah, the Lamb of God to take away this sin. He's the only way. He is the hope. He is everything. And if I place my faith in him alone, I can be saved. And if I believe in Jesus Christ, as he has said multiple times, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. That's the fruit. People having eternal life with him in the kingdom of his father. And he's saying, if, that, if I don't die, that doesn't happen. So I've got to die. I've got to fulfill this hour. Now, verse 25 through 26, I believe he, he's going to show us two groups of people of priorities. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's going to be group one. Group two is this. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I believe that's the second group. So the first group, he, he says, whoever loves this life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world, they will have eternal life. What's he talking about here? I preached on this a few weeks ago. He's talking about that. He's contrasting about, he's talking about what keeps people from having eternal life. Because that's what he's all about. The, the, the fruit that he wants people to see, the fruit that, that will be experienced is eternal life. Eternal life with him. But he's like, here's what keeps people from having eternal life with me. And it's this. He says, Whoever loves his life loses it. Loses what? Whoever loves his life, this life. I love what my life has right now. He says, if you love this life, you lose life. The eternal life. You don't get it. Because you've loved this life. You see, I preached this a few weeks ago. I said there are people who don't want to accept Christ because, number one, they believe the Bible to be too restrictive. 
The Bible has too many do's and don'ts, and, and God's just wanting to rain on your good parade, and he doesn't want you to have fun in life, so thank you, but no thank you. I want to have fun in life. I want to live how I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. I want to believe what I want to believe, and you know what? Don't tell me how. I... And that's how people live. It's my life. I'll do what I want. Live how I want. Go what I, I got dreams. Man, I've got goals I've set for my life. And I don't want God to infringe on that stuff. You know, I like the good things in life. And well, you know, if you choose Jesus, you've got to give all that up. And well, I don't want to give it up. And so Jesus is simple. He's like, I'm going to make it easy for you. If you love this life, that's fine. But you'll lose eternal life. You see, the world says it this way. People say it this way. You can live how you want. You can act how you want. You can choose what you want. You can believe what you want. And as long as you are basically good, you're going to get to heaven. So enjoy life because this is the only life you get. We only go around once. So you better grab life by the horns and get as much out of it as you can. But you'll still go to heaven. That's what people say. Jesus says the exact opposite. You want everything this life can give you, go for it. But you won't have eternal life because you love this life more than real life. You see, that's why in 1 John chapter 2, in verses 15 and 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what's the will of the Father? Jesus tells us. Whoever loves this life loses it. But whoever hates this life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It, God is not pro-fun. Right? He's not, or I, he, I mean, he's not anti-fun. Right? He, he's not about like, oh, you want to have a little, you want to go on vacation? Well, I'm going to squash that. You want, you want to have fun in life? Nope, going to squat. He's not anti-fun. He's not about, you know, the Bible even says that God gives us all things for our enjoyment. All right? He blesses us. He wants to give us good gifts. He's not about that. What God is about is he's not about you having things or enjoying life. He doesn't want you to have things more than him. He doesn't want you to have this life and think this is all there is when the eternal life sits out there and people are letting it go for this. And John says, this is passing away and all of its desires. Everything you can see, everything you can look at, everything you can enjoy, it's all going to be gone. And the thing is, people are buying into this is what I want. And it's only here for a fleeting second. And when it's gone, what's remaining? Jesus says, if you really want life, eternal life, 
You can't love this life. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy things in life, but you can't love it. You can't just buy into it. You can't put all your eggs into this life. Jesus says, I'm the life. And if you put your eggs in my basket, you'll have eternal life. You see, that's the first confrontation of priorities. But here's the second confrontation of priorities I believe I see here. In verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, to me, that is talking to believers now. People who've made the decision, I don't want this life, Jesus. I want eternal life, and I want, to, I want you. But he says, okay, if you serve me, if you know me, you're believing in me, follow me. Okay, now here's the priority thing. Because there's people who are believers. We're saved. But are we really following Jesus? You see, because here's the, here's the thing. Jesus can be your savior, but it doesn't mean he's your priority. Yesterday, I was in a breakout session, and I, I, I love this illustration. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew 6. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You can't. He goes, you'll be devoted to one and despise the other, love one, hate the other. You can't serve both. It is a tug of war. One will win out. And, and, and what he means is you have, you have him and God on one end of the rope, and you have this world and life on the other end, and they are going to do this. You're pulling one way or the other. So you got to picture it like this. Imagine, you're, imagine my arms are, 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 are like clamped down. I can't move them. All right? Jesus is over here. The world and life is over here. As a believer in Jesus Christ, every time something comes up, I have a decision. When it comes to my money, I'm either looking to Jesus with my money and the world is over here. I'm, I'm putting it off. Or the world gets my money and Jesus doesn't. You see, if I can't move my hands and all I can move is my head, all I can do is look at one. And wherever I'm looking, that's getting my focus. And this is getting pushed behind. And so when it comes to worship, it's summertime, folks, almost. So guess what? What's going to get our attention? What's going to have our priority when it comes to worship? Well, I'm going to worship Jesus during the summer. So guess what? There's going to be things that's going to have to get put off to the side. Or I'm going to be attending all my kids' activities and all my sporting events, and I've got things to do. i got to go camping. i got to go away. i got to go, you know, we travel all summer long. So that's what's going to, guess what's getting left? Guess what's getting the priority? That, and Jesus isn't. And we can go down some serving to all kinds of stuff. One of these are getting fed. One is the priority in your life. It is either Jesus and the world is not the priority or the world is your priority and Jesus isn't. You can't have both. 
Which one is your priority as a believer in Jesus Christ? And so often what we do when it comes to priorities, Jesus is simply the same measure of the priority as everybody else. Can I tell you, Jesus doesn't deserve to be the same priority. He be, deserves to be elevated above every priority. He should be the priority. Again, that doesn't mean you, don't, you can't go on vacation. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy your, your kids' um, ball game. It, it doesn't mean that you can't buy something with your money. It, that, that doesn't, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The question is, is, does Jesus get your priority? Just to be honest, if you have to make a decision between the world and Jesus, which, I, mean, I mean, it comes to head, and you've got to make a decision, which one's getting the priority? The world in this life? Or Jesus. It's a confrontation of priorities. And Jesus is saying, here it is. He's like, if you know me, you believe in me, you serve me, follow me. And if you follow me, you're going to be where I'm at. And you keep serving me, you keep following me. And I love what he says. The Father will honor you. Think about that. Man. We're not earning God's love because we do things. We're not earning his grace or his mercy. But there's something about it when we're just like, Jesus, I'm about you. My money, man, I'm gonna, I'm, I am going to tithe because that's my best to you, Jesus. My serving, I'm going to serve because that's my best to you, Jesus. I'm going to worship on Sundays because that's my best to you, Jesus. And I'm going to let the world and everything else fall to the wayside. And Jesus says, those are the people that God is going to honor. He's going to look at you and say, man, you could have chosen so many things in life, but you chose my son and you made him a priority. So, you have the confrontation of understanding, confrontation of priorities. Here's the third thing. You have the confrontation of timing. The confrontation of timing. Look at verse 27. And Jesus says, he says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He knows what he's going to endure. It's not like Jesus got arrested and like, oh, wow, I didn't think, I didn't think this was going to happen. He knows his heart's already troubled. He's already feeling the weight of what is going to take place the night he's arrested. He says, should I ask the father to save me from this hour? He says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This was not in my notes, but as I read over this this morning and when I was in the office, I don't know, this kind of just jumped out at me. I, I, this is where I just really believe that there are times where I can have my notes and my message all done. And I pray over my message each week. I believe the Holy Spirit. But there are times where I believe the Holy Spirit just gives me something. When he says this hour has come and he knows it's going to be the trial of his life. His death is about, and he, he's, he's burdened. But he goes, he goes, it's 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 my purpose here. But look what he says. He goes, Father, glorify your name. He's like, Father, let you be glorified in all of this, in this trial, in the pain, in the hurt. Lord, be glorified in it. And I thought over there, like, shouldn't that be us? Lord God, when I'm facing the hour, 
When I'm facing my trial, when I'm facing my pain, when I'm facing my hurt, when that death in the family happens, when the cancer happens, when my kids walk away, when the finances don't work out, God, when I'm facing the trial, be glorified in it. May I glorify you in this, God, with everything I have. Isn't that a great thing to be able to do? That people are able to see you in the middle of the storm, the trial, the hurt, and the pain, and people are still seeing you just worshiping. God with everything in you. People at work see your witness and your testimony because you're still giving God glory even though you're in the middle of the pain and the hurt and the anguish. And Jesus is like, Father, glorify your name through me. And then it says, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. That's just awesome. I pray God says that about me and says, Jim, I've glorified my name through you and I'll do it again. And I pray that's your prayer also. In verse 29, it says the crowd that stood there, I love this, and heard it. (laughs) Step back for a moment. Imagine if what I just said just a few seconds ago, all of a sudden God just said, amen. And you just heard this voice. How many of you be like, whoa, what in the world was that? All right. They hear this voice. It says some of them said it thundered. Do you think? Others said an angel has spoken to him. I like what Jesus says. The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus like, I don't need to be comforted by the father. I'm always comforted by him. He spoke not to, to, to reassure me. He spoke to reassure you. You see, Jesus is like, man, I'm in my last moments. And God is still trying to prove to you who I am. He's still trying to prove that I am the son of God. I'm try- I, he's like, this is for your benefit, that you will once and for all believe in who I am. And he goes on. In verse 31, Jesus says, now the judgment of, the, of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, that's important to understand. Jesus came to save the world. He is coming to give people opportunities to know him and to come to to, to, to be saved by him. But the reality is, once he dies, he says, judgment is now coming. Judgment on sin. All right? He's come to save us, but those who keep rejecting him, saying no to him, judgment will fall upon them because of their sin. Judgment is coming. And he goes on. And the ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler of the world that he's talking about is Satan. That Satan is going to be defeated completely on the cross. Now, when he says that he's going to be cast out, that's not so much spatial as it is that, that Satan's power is permanently broken. His destiny is fixed. And the power and the curse of sin completely broken. All right? The cross dismantles everything about the enemy. verse 32, Jesus goes on, he says, and I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He's just like, he's just explaining the kind of death he's going to die on the cross. But I love that he's drawing people to himself. People have been trying to find salvation through so many means. 
We try to find it through other religious leaders and other religious gurus. We try to find it through, through you know, drugs or alcohol, through sex. We try to find you know, something to, to heal the pain, feel, to heal the broken, to, to take away my sin through so many avenues. And the reality is those avenues don't get it done. But Jesus says, man, I will draw you onto myself. If you will come to me, man, you will find rest for your soul. You will find forgiveness of your sin. I am the one drawing. Nothing else, no one else. I will draw people onto myself. In verse 34, it says, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They're still not getting it. And so Jesus said to them, and here it is. Here's this point. Here's the confrontation. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe the light that you may become sons of light. He's contrasting darkness and light, and it is not physical darkness. It's not physical light. It's not nighttime and daytime. He's contrasting the difference between the darkness of sin and this world and the lightness of forgiveness and him. And he's like, man, without him, you are still walking in your sin. As long as you and I are sinners, as long as you and I are dead in our sin, we are walking in the darkness of this world. And he says, while you're walking in the darkness, you don't know where you're going. Isn't it ironic how people, some of the smartest people in the world think they know where they're going? Most, some of the most famous people you ever, I don't watch it, but if you ever watched The View with Whoopi Goldberg and, and Joe Behar and a couple others, they sound like they know where they're going. But they are lost in the darkness. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am the light. As he has said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me does not walk in darkness. Meaning if you come to know me as Savior, the light of Christ shines in you. The light of the word of God shines in you. You see, it's the light of God's word that reveals to you and I that we're sinners. It's the light of God's word that shows you you're a sinner separated from God. And when you see that light and that word and you accept it and believe it and receive it, the light of Christ now shines in you. But what we need to see, what this point is about, what he says right there in verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. In verse 36, it says, while you have the light, believe in the light. So basically he's saying there will come a point when the light will no longer be available. You see, you need to understand while you have lung, uh, uh, air in your lungs, a beat in your heart, life, you have an opportunity. The window is open. The light is still shining. But here's the thing. Your life, the heartbeat in your chest, the air in your lungs will stop. There's going to come a day when God will say, give me back my breath. And you will stop breathing. Your heart will stop beating. Your life will end. And in that moment, 
you have no more opportunity to come to the light. Right now, all of us in this room, every person alive in this world is in the window of opportunity to come to the light, to come to know the light, to become children of the light. And the moment you, your body shuts down and you do not know the light, you will walk and wake up in a Christless eternity. Without the light, you will live in darkness forever. You see, you have an opportunity right now. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church, but he knows even in the church there are people who do not believe in Jesus. And he says, we appeal to you to receive the grace of God, not in vain. He's like, and what he means to not receive the grace of God in vain is the message of God. He's like, you're hearing the message of Jesus Christ and what he did and the grace that God wants. He's like, don't do it. Don't listen to it in vain. Meaning people hear it and go, ah, that's great. Don't need it. And they hear it in vain. He's like, don't do that. Don't listen to it in vain. He says, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And here it is. Behold, now is the time the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When? Now. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not, no, you see, and that's why so many people are going to be waking up in a Christless eternity, waking up into the reality of hell because they keep saying, I'll wait till tomorrow. And that tomorrow never comes. You have a window of opportunity right now. You have the window of opportunity and the message of the gospel is being proclaimed to you right now. And right now you have an opportunity to come to the place where you, you understand, I'm a sinner. My sin separates me from God for all eternity. And the only thing that can save you is not you. Because the Galatians tells us that if we could save ourselves, if we, if we could earn righteousness... By obeying the law, Christ died for nothing. Jesus died on a cross for your sin because you are a sinner. And if you would come to that place where you would receive the light of Christ, you become a son and a child, a daughter of the son of, of, of Jesus Christ. You, you, become, you become a child of God. But that's for those who go into the next point. The fourth point is, and don't put that up on the screen yet. Not yet. The fourth point keeps people from understanding. The fourth point keeps us from prioritizing our life. The fourth point keeps me looking to tomorrow. The fourth point doesn't take time seriously because the fourth point is this and what the confrontation is is this, the confrontation of belief. What the triumphal entry brings is a confrontation 
of belief. So verse 36, it says, when Jesus had said these things, he was done speaking. He departed and hid himself from them. I'm not sure why he would have done that, but he did. Verse 37, or verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, the cult did not believe him. The confrontation of belief. He taught them. He showed them. He did so many things before the people. And there were people who got it and understood and they believed. But there were still people all the way up to his last dying breath. I do not believe. Won't believe. The confrontation of belief. And look what happens when there's a confrontation of belief in your heart. Verse 38 says, They would not believe him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with a heart and turn, I would heal them. Now, that makes it sound like Isaiah is saying that God is hardening people's hearts. I don't believe that. What I believe is this, that you can, you can choose not to believe so much. Your heart just becomes so hard. That, 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 that even, it's like God can't even penetrate it anymore. Because every time you hear, like it says, who is listening to what we heard? You hear this presented Week after week, and you've heard people talk to you, and nope, 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 don't want to believe it, don't want to believe it, don't want to receive it. And the more you can continue on to say, no, 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 not going to believe it, not going to believe it, not going to receive it, not going to receive it, the harder your heart becomes. And the harder your heart becomes, the harder it is for the word to pierce it. And the easier it becomes for you to continue to say, no, no, no. Look at verse 42. It says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believe. Now, that's talking about the, the religious leaders. Phenomenal. You know, we know that Nicodemus in John chapter 3 believed. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who, who gave the tomb, was a, a religious leader. He believed, but there were others who could not deny what Jesus was doing, and they believed. They're like, okay, he, he's got to be who he is, but we got a problem. It says they believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, there they are, their choice. Jesus or the glory of man. I want the glory of man and Jesus to get put behind. I love, they believe, but they would not confess. Do you know that's what baptism is? 
Baptism is a confession. That's why today I want to keep it saying it again. If you've never been baptized as a believer, you need to be baptized as a believer. Why? Because it's a public profession. It is telling everybody, I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm showing it through baptism. People who aren't getting baptized are simply saying, I believe, but I don't want to prove it. I don't want to show it. I don't want to really confess it. Why not? Because I'm afraid of what people will say. I'm afraid of what people may do. You see, part of believing is confessing. And Jesus tells us, he goes, listen, um, if you won't confess me before the Father, then, you know, he's, no, he says, if you won't confess me before men, I will not confess you before the Father. That's scary. Because what that is saying, Jesus is like, you're basically saying you don't know me. You're ashamed of me. So if you're not going to confess, confess me while you're alive, why in the world would you confess me for eternity? You see, belief and confession go together. That's why in Romans chapter 10, it says and it, <clears throat> that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess him as Lord, you shall be saved. So let me ask you, do you have a confrontation of belief going on in your heart? Because, loved ones, listen, the Bible makes it very clear. You got to understand who Jesus is, that he came to die on a cross for your sin. You are a sinner. The Bible makes it very clear. All of us are unrighteous. There's not one, not one of you is righteous before God. Well, Jim, I'm pretty sexy for my shirt, though. You don't know me. God would be impressed with what I can do. No, he's not. Because even though we can do some good things, the core like an apple. How many of you ever eat the core? Why not? Because it's nasty. Everything else looks really good, but that core, something's wrong with it. You see, you may look good, but biblically your core, the core of who you are, is a sinner. And it's that core that keeps you sin as a sinner and unrighteous before God. And it's got to be Jesus that fixes the core and only he can and so you got to understand that you are a sinner separated from God and it's Jesus that came to die on that cross but if you will come to know him the Bible says that that we are justified see this is why believing is so important we are justified made right before God through faith that we are saved by God's grace not by our works through faith so when you come to the place where you understand Jesus died for my sin, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved, and you come to the place where you realize, I may not have tomorrow. This might be my only time. I better prioritize now. And by faith, believing Jesus, I have no other way to fix me. Jesus, I have no other way to fix this core. Jesus, I have no other way. I, I can't earn my way. I can't, I can't get this thing done. So Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died on that cross. I believe that you came to save humanity. I am one of those people. And Jesus, I need you to save me.
Jesus, I need you to come into my life and fix me, change me, forgive me. And I'm telling you, you do that by faith. You do that by believing in him. This says that the spirit of God comes in you and you in that moment are born again. No longer spiritually dead, but spiritually alive. No longer separated from God, but brought close to God. No longer an enemy of God, but a friend of God. No longer outside the family, but now a part of the family of God. But only you can answer that question. Do you know Jesus as your personal savior? Not your wife, not your husband, not your friend, not your... No, you. Do you know him? And if you don't know Jesus as your savior today, loved one, listen, that window's gonna close. Don't, don't turn God into to Las Vegas. Don't think you can shoot craps and think I can come up a seven or 11, I think I'll be okay. Because you may not. Now is the time of salvation. Today is that day. Why don't you close your... Eyes with me, bow your heads, please. If the worship team could come up and get us ready to close. But I just, I just want you to just focus on where you're at spiritually. Where's your life with Christ right now? You know, maybe you are a good person and you do good things. And maybe you're a religious person because you come to church. But those things don't make you saved. Those things cannot save you. They just make you good. They just make you religious. The only thing that can save you from your sin, the only thing that can make you right before God, the only thing that can give you eternal life, the only thing that can get you to heaven is faith in Christ. So let me ask you, do you know Jesus as your Savior today? If you don't, I would love to pray with you. If you don't know Christ as your personal Savior and would like to come to Him, confess Him as your Savior. Make Him Lord of your life. Would you do me a favor? Would you just raise your hand? Because I want to pray with you. I don't want anybody leaving here today thinking you're okay if you're not. Would there be anyone say, Jim, I want you to pray with me. Here's what we're going to do. I want everybody to please stand. We're going to sing this last song. And as we finish up, as I go out in the foyer, if that is you, you want Jesus as your Savior, please talk to me. I don't want you to leave uncertain today. And so if you don't know Christ as your Savior and you want to, please come and talk to me. But let's, let's close with this song.